Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. You're listening to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I'm already exhausted by 2023. There has been a lot of news in the first few days of the year on Capitol Hill, on the economy, and of course, in the airline industry. The news takes us from Washington to Pago Pago. Ben Baldanza, I know you're keeping up with it at all. Are you ready to dive into some interesting airline business? Absolutely, Scott. And like you, I can't believe how quickly the year is going on already. Well, it was a very turbulent week, not even having a leader of the house for I guess, 15 tries, right? But now maybe the house can get to some business that might be productive for the industry, like allowing families to sit together, but probably wouldn't be so helpful to the business, like telling an airline how much they need to spend on IT. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think think the one thing that's clear is it's going to be hard for the house to agree on anything. So we'll see where it goes. But there's so much going on in the world that we needed to find a doctor to explain it all. Not a medical doctor, an airline doctor. Dr. Rob Britton, PhD, is our guest today, and he'll help us diagnose both the infirmities of the airline business and some of his prescriptions for improved and sustained health. Rob's a veteran of American and Northwest who now teaches at Georgetown and is a most sought-after speaker on business school campuses. Last year, he spoke at nearly three dozen schools around the world. I'm looking forward to learning from Dr. Britton. Well, I always learn from Dr. Rob. He and I live fairly close together, so meet once in a while for coffee and always have very spirited discussions around the industry, what's going on. His ideas are always current and based on sort of a really great career doing lots of interesting things. So I hope our listeners really enjoy him. I'm looking forward to it. Ben, in headlines this past week, Southwest estimated the cost of its Christmas crisis at between $725 million and $825 million pre-tax in the fourth quarter. Coincidentally, Southwest had earned just about that same amount through the first nine months of the year. $759 $759 million. Assuming Southwest had positive earnings in the 84 or so days of the fourth quarter before the meltdown, the airline is likely to still be in the black for the year. But even that may be seen as a black eye. Southwest restarted its dividend just before the meltdown, and the airline has been widely criticized for not spending to upgrade systems while it was spending to reward shareholders. The earnings hit, it should be noted, may continue for some time. Southwest is giving 25,000 points to people affected by cancellations, which probably means hundreds of thousands of tickets that might have been bought with cash instead will be bought with points. And there may be lasting costs in terms of rebuilding customer trust and dealing with Washington investigations. 
Ben, what's your take on the financial blow to Southwest? Is, will it matter in the long run? Well, I agree. It's going to make it tough for Southwest to be profitable this year, I think. One of the reasons the cost is so high, not only did they disrupt so many people, that's the biggest reason, but with so many eyes looking at them from Congress and the risk of new regulation and such, I think they're going above and beyond in making sure that they're refunding, they're refunding quickly, that they're refunding not only the money they were paid for the airline ticket, but maybe other things that customers lost out on because of the cancellation, like a hotel or something like that. I saw a lawyer on TV, Scott, representing a group of passengers suing Southwest, and he used the words that he was insulted by the 25,000 points to give them. He said, when an airline ruined your entire holiday, why would they think that 25,000 points that you could only use on the airline that just ruined your holiday was any kind of reasonable compensation for that? So I think the way they pay people back and the way Congress reacts, how the lawsuits that are already happening, and undoubtedly there will be more happen, are going to go a long way to say how long it will take for Southwest to be able to put this behind them. But eventually they certainly will, I think. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting point, Ben. And I wonder if Southwest's response, which is getting so much attention, particularly at the Department of Transportation, I, I wonder if that's going to become in some way the, the de facto standard for the rest of the industry. So Southwest is said it would pay for tickets on other airlines. Um, that's not a standard practice. Uh, most Most airlines... Uh, in the contract of carriage, they say they'll only do that at their discretion, and some won't do it at all. So does this become standard accepted practice? What happens when the next airline that has a meltdown says, we're not going to pay for tickets on other airlines? Is the government going to essentially put Rule 240 back in and say, uh, you have to pay for tickets on other airlines? It's a great point, Scott. If it gets to that, my guess is the industry will come together to agree on some more economic way to do that, given that everybody would be subject to that. Now, obviously, if an airline the size of, say, a frontier has to buy tickets on United or something like that, that's very different than if American has to buy tickets on a Delta or something. But the point is, if there's no pre-agreement around what to pay and the only thing you can buy is what the airline's selling real time for the flight this afternoon or tomorrow, it's going to result in huge charges at every airline. So my guess is the industry would get together and say, let's find out a more efficient way to buy tickets on each other when we're all forced to do that. 
You know, Ben, that would be a great thing for travelers. I would love to see the industry take the initiative and uh, find a way to get get a waiver from antitrust rules or whatever you need and uh, and figure this out um, before our splintered Congress uh, hammers down a, a solution that um, uh, that might get political attention, but wouldn't be uh, very helpful. One can only hope, uh, but it certainly make it easier for travelers or at least give them uh, some sense that they have options when the airline they've bought a ticket on uh, is canceling on them. In other news this week, interesting stuff, Ben. United, uh, which CEO Scott Kirby recently very proudly proclaimed had become the best airline in the world, had a tough week. Um, at least in the media. A customer used an Apple AirTag to track her mishandled baggage to local malls, to McDonald's, to an apartment complex when United was telling her that it was safely in its distribution center. She got tons of airtime on television and the internet, and I think that's one more wake-up call to the industry. I think real change is needed in baggage tracking and delivery and information people get when airlines have their bags. Customers are way ahead of you, airlines, and you can't hide behind the delivery company made me do it. People will know when you're lying or mistaken about the whereabouts of their belongings. It makes for great TV, and it reminds me of the early days of flight tracking alerts and services when passengers at the gate had better information than the gate agents. Airlines, you're collecting billions of dollars in bag fees. Fix this. You're absolutely right, Scott. And the idea of putting air tags in your bags makes so much sense. You know, years ago, when that Malaysia airplane disappeared, one of the funnier comments I heard after that, even though it was a not funny event, of course, is someone said, couldn't they just use find my iPhone for one of those customers and know where the plane is? And that idea, you know, that was years ago, but that idea today is this idea, right? You can know where things are. And so the worst thing about the situation you just talked about is not even that someone took this person's bag and then went to McDonald's and went to their apartment, but that the airline thought they had it and yeah. it was in their distribution center. That's the real problem, I think. That's right. And the world has changed. You know, UPS can tell me that my box is 10 stops away and then it's nine stops away and eight stops away. I can know exactly when Amazon is going to show up at my door Airlines are going to have to get with it on this. I think that's right. Now, going back to Scott Kirby's comment that United is the best airline in the world, I had a couple thoughts on this, Scott. First of all, I'm wondering what he thinks United is best at. They don't make the most money. They don't have the lowest costs. They don't fly to more cities in the world than any other airline. They do a lot of things well. They have a good network. As an employee rallying cry, I love that. You know, get everyone together. Hey, we're the best airline in the world. Let's show that to every one of our customers every day. But as a public statement, it creates an expectation that's just going to be impossible for 
united to live up to. Can you imagine how many times this moniker, the best airline in the world, is going to get repeated when someone loses their bag, when their flight is inevitably canceled, when something goes wrong, as it will? Yeah, I I completely agree, Ben. And um, I, I think even as a rallying cry for employees, it's a it's a little over the top. I I, I think I'd rather be uh, we're number two, and we have to continue to keep working harder to get to number one. Um, but to declare victory and say we've become the best airline in the world, you know, it's it's great that he has a lot of pride in United. It's great for United employees and customers to have pride in the airline. But I agree, uh, you know, based on on what measure. I spent a lot of time at the Wall Street Journal developing uh, rankings for airline operational performance. Um, and that was just one measure of what might be best. And it was, you know, there was a different best airline each year um, because airlines had good years and bad years operationally. We worked very hard on the metrics that went into that to figure out which airline was running the best operation. But that didn't take an, into account uh, whether your pillows were fluffier than than Delta's or whether your flight attendants were friendlier than Americans or all the many other things, whether your schedule is best for me is, is a completely subjective thing. There's so many subjective uh, elements to airline business. But you're right. If it if it gets a lot of attention, best airline in the world um, really could be a, a tough thing for United to live up to. And, you know, Scott, when I teach my class and I talk to younger students who fly a lot, many of them are international students. And when they fly home, they're going to the Middle East or to India or to South America or something. And their number one complaint about any airline is spotty Wi-Fi. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a fascinating thing when you're five miles up in the air and traveling at 600 miles an hour. And you think, you know what? This Wi-Fi service is really spotty. <laughs> it sort of, sort of uh, uh, suspends reality. But there was big Wi-Fi news this week. Delta announced it would make Wi-Fi free on most of its flights starting in February. I remember talking to Delta CEO Ed Bastian about this several years ago. Delta has wanted to do this for some time, but found it couldn't until it got planes upgraded to satellite-based Wi-Fi that had the capacity to handle a lot of passengers making heavy use of free service. Otherwise, systems get overloaded and the experience was awful. You couldn't get on, it was too slow, you got kicked off, equipment crashed. So instead of a perk, like you just pointed out, Wi-Fi became a giant pain point. So Delta did invest And now it and JetBlue have a nice advantage over competitors, especially with business travelers. What do you think, Ben? Does Wi-Fi really matter? I think Wi-Fi matters to to a point. You said earlier the right airline for me on a flight could change depending on where I'm going. So would I fly an eight-hour connection versus a four-and-a-half-hour nonstop just for better Wi-Fi? Probably not, right? But if the prices are similar and the services are similar, might that be uh, a decision point to use? Certainly. And 
you know, I'm 61, so it's possible someone 21 would rank it very differently than I just did. Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, so before we leave the news, I wanted to mention one other United story. Uh, United was in the New Year's news when a flight from Los Angeles to Sydney diverted to Pago Pago. And the airline got much better marks on this one and, and might lay claim to best airline in the world. Passengers got a tour of the remote Pacific Island. They enjoyed beers on the beach and all available hotel rooms while waiting for a replacement aircraft and crew to fly in from Los Angeles. Not a bad way to spend New Year's, I guess. I thought that was a great story and probably not a lot of people choose to go to Pago Pago as their vacation destination. Some certainly do. Some certainly have affinity there with families and things like that. But these people were going to Australia and were probably hoping to be in Australia on New Year's. But the fact that they sort of made good tasting lemonade out of these mm -hmm. lemons by giving them beers on the beach, making sure they had hotel rooms and they eventually got to Sydney. I agree. United did as well as they could on this. And I bet most of the customers had a really good time on that. Although I'm sure a few of them were disappointed that something they expected to happen in Sydney ended up not happening. And I would just point out, uh, I think many of our listeners probably know, um, the Pacific Islands are great places to visit. I, I did a story years ago uh, when Continental had an island hopper route from Honolulu to Guam, and it stopped at Johnston Atoll and Ponape and all these little places in between. The flight was, was really the lifeline, brought in medicine and food and uh, all kinds of necessities for those little islands, but they're just incredible places to visit. Um, so I'm sure those people got a, got a real treat. All right. Coming up next, our interview with Rob Britton. Airlines Confidential appreciates the support of our great sponsors who've been bringing you this podcast all year long. Seabury Securities is a Seabury Capital Group company. Their widely respected team has been advising clients around the world for more than 25 years. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. And Sidley Austin is the go-to law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com aviation for more information. We are excited to have Dr. Rob Britton join us today. Even though Rob is very smart, he spent his life around airlines, holding positions at both American and Northwest, from advertising to food, corporate communications to international affairs. He now runs consultancy AirLearn, focusing on marketing and revenue strategies and leadership issues, and is an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Business School where he teaches effective crisis management and channel strategies. Rob, it is a delight to have you join us on Airlines Confidential. Scott, thanks so much for having me. I really feel like I've uh, been called up from the minor leagues into, uh, into the big leagues by, uh, by getting on the call and on the, uh, on the podcast, and I appreciate the invitation very much. 
Well, Rob, if you've listened to the show, you know we always have our guests introduce themselves. So tell our listeners about your background and what you're up to today beyond what Scott just said. Sure. Thanks, Ben, for that. Really, I think the the most important thing is that for about the last 30 years, I've really thought of myself as having a hybrid career with uh, one foot in um, the airline business, as uh, as Scott mentioned, in a number of different roles, mostly at American Airlines, uh, and the other foot firmly planted uh, in business uh, schools worldwide. And uh, so today, Uh, These past years, really for about the last 15 or 16 years, I've been away from full-time work in the airline business and uh, spend my time now with uh, a little bit of consulting and a whole lot of teaching. Uh, I made it last year to uh, 34 schools, um, mostly in Europe, actually some in North America, and it's just great, keeps me busy and off the streets. (laughs) That's great. Let's jump right to alliances. Which of the three offered the best overall experience, in your opinion? Scott, I don't travel enough across the alliances, really, to have a view. Uh, I'm pretty much a, a flyer when I go over to teach, for example, in Europe. I'm pretty much flying over on, uh, on American. Um, once in a while, I'll, you know, I'll jump on a BA flight in Europe. So I really don't have a view, but, but I do think uh, I have a pretty strong view about the way that alliances present themselves. And as you know, much of my background was in airline marketing. And so I, you know, I've got a particular perspective. And, and I think all of them, whether we're talking Sky Team or Star or One World, overpromise to the customer uh, in two ways. First of all, they love the word seamless, right? Every one of them in their marketing and communications uses the word seamless. And it just ain't so. I mean, it's not a seamless experience, for example, to get off of a, an American Airlines flight at London Heathrow and get onto British Airways. It's uh, less than seamless. And I think overpromising, and we may come back to this later on, but overpromising is a bad thing uh, in the airline business. And the second uh, problem that I have with the way that alliances operate and present themselves is that the airport and onboard product, if you will, across alliance members um, is often very inconsistent. Uh, and again, the sort of feel, you know sort of feeds back to the idea of seamlessness. You know, it's it's a it's a it's it's a fact that today on within the Star Alliance, for example, you make one flight on one airline and you get a free beer and a sandwich, and you make another flight of similar distance on another airline and you have to pay for the beer and the sandwich. So I think inconsistency is something that all of the alliances need to work on. You know, Rob, that brings up my next question, which in some ways, do you think alliances? might be outdated today, given that there are so many technological options to just connect any two airlines. Well, Ben, you're exactly right. The, um, the, the number of you know, websites and technological options that have jumped in that allow, for example, a customer to essentially construct his or her own connection is true. But I do think that alliances are still really relevant uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, big travel agencies, you know, the big travel management companies like Carlson, Vagon Lee, and American Express still generate lots of high yield business 
for Alliance members. So that's thing one. I think thing two is if we look across to the customers, uh, global travelers, you know, if we're talking about a, a partner at a big law firm or, you know, a, a consultant at, at BCG or whatever, these global travelers really appreciate reciprocal loyalty programs. Uh, I remember back when I was at American, when we would do market research on alliances and we would ask our customers, what do they care about? It was always about the miles. It was always about the points. And so I think that I think that you have those factors. And then on top of that, we still are in a world where bricks and mortar travel agencies, if we look at a global scale, bricks and mortar travel agencies are still selling about half of all tickets worldwide. And as you guys know, the display parameters for the systems that these travel agents use, basically Sabre or Amadeus, still place a co-chair connection at the top of the travel agent's screen. And that's what gets sold. So given those realities, I think they're still, you know, they're still relevant, notwithstanding the, uh, notwithstanding the, the technological alternatives that, that Ben talked about. Rob, that's really interesting. It, it, uh, it, it, the, uh, talking about travel agencies and all brings up business travel and we talk about that a lot on the show. Um, I'm curious, do you agree that business travel has permanently changed? And if so, how? Well, uh, Scott, it's certainly changed. Uh, but I think that we need to wait a little bit, made a, a wait a year or two, to call the changes permanent, right? The pandemic, uh, as, uh, as uh, Gordon Bethune articulated on, uh, on the last podcast, you know, an unprecedented disruption. Uh, causing a lot of changes. Now, as the business rebuilds from the pandemic, there's no doubt that the nature of, uh, of business travel demand has changed. You can just look back, for example, uh, at the third quarter 2022 earnings calls. Uh, the execs at American and Delta and United, all three of those whether it was the CEO or the CFO, all three airlines talked about change in demand. This idea that Gordon talked about on the last show, more blended travel. So, you know, Susie's working from home, uh, but, you know, once or twice a month, she needs to go out to the home office in San Francisco for a meeting. And if she goes out there, she might take her partner along and they can spend a couple of days, you know, up in Napa or whatever. So that blended business and leisure travel. The other thing that everybody's talking about is the, the, the flattening of peaks. And this is really, I think, an interesting development. You know, business travel demand and travel, airline travel demand in general has been, you know, a peak and valley kind of thing. You know, less travel on a Tuesday and then on Monday. And all of the uh, execs on the third quarter call were talking about the flattening of the weekly peak. And they were also interestingly talking about some observed flattening in daily patterns. So, you know, you think about a business traveler that wants to get on an 8 a.m. flight and what they're seeing is a little bit less of that. Um, and then the third change that we're seeing, which is really across, um, across from business travel, but it's, it's still worth talking about, is this idea that leisure travelers are buying up. And a number of revenue managers at, at airlines have said, you know, we may, we've seen last year they were talking about some erosion of demand, for example, in the premium economy cabin, say on a flight from Chicago to Frankfurt. 
but they were saying quickly, adding quickly, that they were seeing a lot of those seats in premium economy being being purchased by people that had no, that had previously bought in pure economy. So a little bit of buying up. So I, I, I bring it back around to a permanent change. I'd say we ought to wait for a little while, but there's certainly some changes in demand. I, I'm curious. Um, uh, you mentioned. Uh, teaching at 34 universities um, in the last year. Do you see any of that being um, going to Zoom, um, th- that a school would say, uh, hey, Rob, let's have you on the screen rather than let's have you in front of the classroom? It's happened. <laughs> Just, it's a good question, Scott. It's happened a little bit. But for the most part, uh, people really want me to be there in person if I can be there in person. Now, you know, for you know, I, I've had a couple of I've had a couple of queries in the just in the last month about, um, look, we love seeing you in person, but our budget's under siege. Uh, can you do a Zoom call instead? Uh, and I said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. But I, I, by the, at the same time, I made a pitch. Uh, a couple of weeks ago to give a talk because my schedule was kind of jammed when the prof wanted to have me to give the talk. This was Imperial College in London. And I said, look, I can't be there in person. Can I do it via Zoom? And a couple of days later, he came back to me and he said, no, you can't do it via Mm. Zoom because our students, now that the pandemic has abated, our students have told us loud and clear they expect face-to-face interaction. Interesting. Hmm. That is interesting. You know, Rob, the other thing that makes me think there may be some permanence to the business change is not pandemic related, but is ESG related. It seems like so many businesses almost lazily have picked out air travel as something that they can easily do less to check an ESG box. Is that too cynical? No, I I think it's spot on, Ben. And you and I talked about this a few months ago when we were having a cup of coffee. And it was, for me at that time, uh, a new development. And I, after we finished our coffee, I came back and did some research. And, and sure enough, I think you're spot on there. I think you're on to something. Uh, and I think it's going to be something that, you know, airlines are going to need to probably quietly acknowledge because uh, everyone, uh, the companies themselves, and certainly the investment community, everyone seems to be focused very sharply uh, on ESG metrics. And Ben, you're exactly right. What easier way to meet your carbon uh, quota for the year than saying we're going to we're going to do less travel. Uh, and I think this is, you know, this is potentially a big concern for uh, a company that is an airline company that's reliant on business travel. So, again, I think this is going to be something that we're going to need to watch very carefully. Uh, Gordon Bethune on the last podcast, you know, talked about exactly why business travel historically has happened. And that is that sort of especially in the sales environment or the professional consulting environment that need to be uh, face to face with your customer. Uh, but we, we need to keep an eye on this as we go forward. It's going to be an interesting thing to watch because I think you're right, Ben. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty easy way to tick that ESG box. More with Rob Britton in a moment. Our sponsors make Airlines Confidential possible, and we are very grateful for their support. We want to thank our sponsor, Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is a world leader in aircraft engines, 
helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. Pratt & Whitney is powering more sustainable aviation through smarter technology, cleaner fuels, and greener business. Learn more at prattwhitney.com slash sustainability. Well, let's go from business travel to something much more interesting, food. Um, You used to work in the food service business at American. What did you learn about airline food service that has stuck with you, Rob? Yeah, Ben, good one. Um, you know, I try to I try to stay close to um, sort of the tangible parts of the onboard customer experience, whether we're talking seats or IFE and connectivity and food. Um, when it comes to food, um, a, a few things still bounce around in my head. Uh, if I think about you know going back twenty plus years to running the the department at American and, and, and fast forwarding today to today, if we go forward to today, one of the things that's still with me that I'm struck by when I attend, for example, a, a big trade show, a big food trade show, when I try to go to those once in a while in recent years, but caterers. Um, and we're still essentially talking about a duopoly in airline catering between uh, LSG Sky Chefs, part of the Lufthansa Group, and, and Gate Gourmet, who is a company based in Switzerland, but now owned by, uh, by, uh, by Hainan, uh, HNA, the, the HNA Group, Hainan Airlines, etc. But those two companies, Sky Chefs and Gate, still make lots of money with added labor. Uh, meaning they prepare food in kitchens that could be made with higher quality and at a lower cost by a centralized manufacturer. And I was, when I, when I, when I ran the department back some years ago, I was always struck by the fact that I would get a, a call from, you know, a company that said, look, we can do a prepared entree and flash freeze it and, you can put it on your uh, on your airplane at a fraction of the cost of the caterers preparing that steak or whatever it is uh, in the kitchen. So that's thing one. Um, a second piece uh, that sticks with me and that's still around is that airline food service is ripe for disintermediation, right? All sorts of middlemen and middlewomen, essentially food brokers, make tons of money off of airlines and add very little value. And so I would say to airlines, just as you've done when you sell your tickets, airlines need to put much more effort into buying directly from producers, no matter that's a a water bottler or a soft drink bottler or a cereal manufacturer or whatever. And a third, coming back to my sort of crankiness about over-promising, is that in the premium classes, uh, airlines still really inflate uh, descriptions of food on menus and in advertising. The food is good. It's better than it used to be, but it's never going to be restaurant quality. Okay. And I'd really like to see that word gourmet excised permanently. All very good points. That's, uh, that's really fascinating. I, I had a recent flight where uh, the, the overpromising was um, very much a part of the menu. Uh, so I appreciate that very much. Um, Rob, tell us more about your teaching. Um, ben and I both teach. Uh, we're, we're curious, um, do you learn as much as your students when you teach? I, I do. This absolutely true. Students offer me 
uh, perspectives that I really can't get anywhere else, uh, both perspectives relevant to the airline industry and travel, and more broadly across other industries. You know, and particularly, these are the perspectives and the insights that come from them you know, dwelling much more actively in the, you know, in the digital and online world. And so, you know, they really, they really help me stay up to speed on, on, on all different aspects of, uh, of digital commerce. And, you know, the other thing that, and I know this is true for, for Ben uh, and for you, Scott, um, you know, the other thing that is a real benefit for people of our age, right, the gray hairs of the world, uh, although Scott, you and I have gone gray, Ben not so much. I, I, I really tell the students um, that I that I value them because they let me see the future, right? And you know, there is going to be a time when uh, I'm not around, but these young people that I'm teaching at the London School of Economics or the University of Zurich or at Yale, wherever, are going to be running companies. And when I listen to them talk about um, issues, for example, of ethics and moral behavior, you know, I can really feel good about where commerce seems to be going. So bottom line, absolutely. I learn as much or more from them as I hope I can able to share with, uh, with my students. Yeah, I think that's great insight. One of the things I, I love about it is how much students love travel. Um, it, uh, I think we have a generation of, uh, of people coming up who Grew up with travel, um, uh, love travel, would much rather have experiences than things. And, and that certainly bodes well for the future of the airline business. It does. And I think the other piece of that that, that, that's, that, that fits right into boding well for the airline business is that, is that when, I, when I teach, and particularly this is a little bit more true in when I teach in Europe than here in North America, but I'm astonished at how mobile especially graduate students, and about 80% of my teaching is to graduate students, but how astonishingly mobile they are in terms of, you know, moving, moving jobs, moving career, moving continents. They, they truly were seeing, I think, really truly the, the, the development and evolution uh, of, of true global citizens. And I think that's got to be a good thing. You know, I agree with both of you, and I certainly feel more, much more optimistic about the future because of my teaching. Well, Rob, United Airlines just called themselves the best airline in the world. What's your reaction to that? Ben, uh, as you might expect, given what I've been talking about in terms of expectations and, and, and uh, the word gourmet and all that, I think it's a bad idea. Overpromising and inflating expectations has been endemic in our, in our business for years. I suspect that whoever came up with that line, I suspect that they didn't consult their frontline employees before launching that amount of hot air. You know, if I look back on my career, when I led um, the corporate communications team at American and then later in my career, the advertising group, I constantly, constantly battled ad agencies and PR consultancies that wanted hyperbole. You know, as an example, kind of a fun example, for years, American Airlines had the word luxury liner painted on the fuselage next to the aircraft type just below the cockpit windows. And I would, you know, when I was getting on a DC-10 or a 767, I saw 767 luxury liner and I schlepped back to seat 32F 
I didn't feel like I was really in much luxury at that point. So it took years, but I finally convinced the powers that be to remove those words. And when the airplane went into its sea check, the paint of the decal or whatever it was, it said luxury liner came off. And I thought, well, that's a stroke in the right direction. But there's a lot more that needs to be done. And I think United does both their employees and their customers and other stakeholders a disservice with that kind of hyperbole. That's a, that's very interesting. Um, and, and it leads into the next question we had, which is airline branding is important to some, um, but many people still buy on price alone. So what do you think is the right role for brand marketing in the airline business today? Yeah, it's a, a great question, Scott, and I'm not sure I have a compact answer. But, I, you know, I think that as, as I just sort of talked about in terms of expectation management, I think that airline marketers need, first of all, to realistically present the functional aspects of the product, right? And, and, and you, know, I, you know, that's something that needs to be done. And I think generally the trend is moving in the right direction, notwithstanding uh, United's bravado. But the other thing that I would say about, about brand marketing uh, is that in a commodity business like airlines, and surely we all agree that it is a commodity, right? The best way to build and maintain a brand, in, 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 in my view, uh, is with emotional differentiation like the way that Coca-Cola and Pepsi do it, right? You know, that, that stuff is, you know, Cola is the same, right? You can do a blind taste test and a Coke, absolute Coke loyalist will not accurately identify Coca-Cola, right? So the stuff is the same, but emotion is what Coca-Cola and Pepsi use to differentiate, to make them different. And I think that that kind of emotional differentiation, which, you know, if you look at Coke or Pepsi, or if you look at, for example, uh, another commodity product, basically uh, cosmetics and beauty care products, you know, mainly aimed at women, uh, but to a certain extent at men, I mean, that stuff all uses emotion to try to create and build the brand. And I think that's, that's the sustainable way that airlines can differentiate is by building some positive brand image that's built around emotion. And, um, you know, there, I, I, and again, I think the trend is slowly in that direction. Now, the other thing that I would say about brand marketing, and again, we could talk for hours about this, is that airline people need to pay attention to consistency uh, in the way that they visually, what we call visual branding in, in, in the marketing world, consistency across visual branding. And that means consistency across all the platforms from aircraft, paint jobs, what they call livery, to web pages, to advertising. And I think that that consistency from a visual standpoint, coupled with uh, a, a certain distinctive emotional position is probably the way that uh, airlines should be. But back to your question and back to your point, you're exactly right. What we've seen over 30 or 40 years is that increasingly people, whether they're leisure travelers or business travelers or so-called managed travelers working for a big corporation, increasingly are buying on the basis of price. Exactly right. Well, Rob, there was one big merger deal proposed in 2022. And at least I've made a prediction that in 2023, we might see a merger proposal in the regional business. Do you think further consolidation is good for the industry or is it better status quo? 
Well, I think we've, we need to sort of take it apart sort of by nature of carrier. I think if we look at the regional industry in the United States, I think that's, I think the regionals are, are ripe for some amount of consolidation. I don't think you need the number of regional operators that we have today. If we look at the larger the larger business, the mainline operators, I don't think there's much left to consolidate. And I think in the certain, I think certainly the political climate here in Washington would come down very hard on things. So, so, so here in the U.S., you know, no to mainline uh, further consolidation. Yes to probably the likelihood of a of a regional tie-up. If we look across on, if we take the global scale, we jump across the Atlantic and look at Europe. You know, I think we're going to be looking over the next, and I don't want to predict a time scale, but next five to 10 to 15 years, I think there's likely to be consolidation. But let me hasten to add that it's going to be messy. Okay, it's going to be messy no matter where and what and how and who is looking to consolidate. And it's going to be messy because, first of all, national culture, second of all, powerful trade unions, you know, and on and on and on. And I would just ask you guys to, you know, to pay off my my idea that it's going to be messy. Look at Air France and KLM. You know, they when when Air France acquired KLM some years ago, what it's been more than a decade ago, you know, they they they, they sort of put a brave face on it all and they said, look, we're going to maintain these separate brands because they both of them are powerful brands and they have brand equity and all this kind of stuff. And, and that was really not what was going on. What was going on is that they need to operate separate companies because the trade unions in Europe are national and not regional in scope. There's no such thing as a European-wide uh, pilot union, right? So you've got all of these other kinds of things that go on that are going to make it messy if, for example, you know, Lufthansa Group uh, goes forward with a proposal to uh, acquire, you know, some amount of investment in the successor to Alitalia, ITA. I don't know. Sounds like a bad idea on a number of levels. But they'll probably continue to operate those as separate brands as against, you know. And, and I think if you what happens there, guys, is that if you keep the brand separate, you start to lose some of the financial synergy that say an AA US Airways tie-up produced, or that the likelihood of a JetBlue Spirit tie-up is going to produce. That kind of, you know, putting the two brands together, repainting the airplanes, rationalizing the network, pulling all this stuff together provides a lot of financial benefit. It's going to be hard to do if you keep the brand separate. Now, the last thing that I'll say about consolidation uh, is that if we look across to other parts of the world, especially developing countries, I think that both political and business leaders need to think very carefully about whether they need an airline, right? If you look down to the smallest scale of you know, so-called flag carriers in Africa or in parts of Asia, you know, I think that I think that the idea of a flag carrier is really an anachronism. So I think going forward, we're going to be, you know, we're going to be looking at, at, at some interesting aspects of consolidation. Now, the last thing I'll say here is that behind all this, of course, is the fact that just about every country in the world continues to have national laws 
that prevent foreign capital from owning more than whatever the number is, 49% of the airlines. So, you know, one of the reasons why we have a very unconsolidated industry in the airline sector worldwide is because exactly you can't, if you're a foreigner, go buy Emirates or go buy Air Canada or whomever. One of the strange, really unique things about uh, about this industry. Um, so you've you've started down the path, I think, Rob. But last week, uh, Ben and I made some predictions for the industry for 2023. Uh, care to make one yourself? <laughs> you guys are way smarter than I am, mm-hmm. and I'll tell you something. I have, and, and and not only are you way smarter, but I have always been not always, but for about six, 50 years or so. I've always been reluctant to predict, okay? And I think the reason I'm reluctant is that when I look back on predictions that I made when I was young, they were almost always wrong, okay? And my favorite example, I'll tell you a quick story. My favorite example is Federal Express. I went to a show that was held here at Dulles Airport in Washington in 1972, sponsored by the U.S. Department of Transportation called Transpo 72. And they had a bunch of airplanes on display and a bunch of helicopters, civil aviation, military aviation. Uh, Mostly it was stuff that flew. Uh, And sitting on the tarmac was a, a Falcon jet painted in the colors of Federal Express. And I walked over there and I looked at this airplane. I talked to some guy and said, what's the deal? And they explained how they were going to do overnight package delivery. And I thought to myself, it's never going to work. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit reluctant on that. So I don't, I, you know, I, I heard you guys talk about what you thought might happen. I'm not going to make any predictions. I'm going to stay quiet and you, let you guys who are the true experts prognosticate on where the future is going to go. Well, I, I will predict that uh, the students you teach in the coming year will be very lucky to have you, and, uh, and it's been a pleasure to have you uh, with us today. So thank you very much, Rob Britton. Great to talk well, to you. And Rob, I will add that our listeners are really going to like the insights you shared. Thank you very much for being on the show. Ben Scott, it's been a pleasure to have my debut uh, on Airlines Confidential. Thanks again for having me. Well, we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We have some interesting questions from listeners this week. The first comes from Andy in Toronto, who says, Hi, guys. Love the show. I don't think you've discussed this on the show before. I've recently been reading about how the government of Mexico plans to launch a military-run commercial airline. They recently bought the rights to use the branding of the previously defunct Mexicana airline. The president of Mexico says he has a discontent with the country's airlines as the reasoning for the launch of this new venture. What are your thoughts on this? It seems very odd to me that the military would run a commercial airline. Scott, is this just a new form of nationalizing an airline? 
Ben, I am totally fascinated with this story. This is this is really an airport in search of an airline. Uh, the president of Mexico, as you may recall, scrapped a new $13 billion international hub airport for Mexico City that was already partly built. Mexico City is terribly overcrowded and needs airport capacity. But the president declared that project corrupt and then in March opened a new international airport at a military base north of the city. There's not yet a train connection to it. It's 30 miles out of the way. And guess what? There aren't many flights there. I, I should note that there was, there was one flight there this past weekend when Air Force One touched down at the new airport after a personal request by the president of Mexico to President Biden to use that airport instead of the main airport because he was getting so much criticism for this project. We all know that airlines hate to split operations in a city. The Mexican president is learning this lesson apparently as well, but he needs an airline for his new airport. So he's trying to revive Mexicana, which shut down in 2010. And if the military is running the airport, it might as well run the airline, I guess. Well, that makes sense, although I can't imagine that the military, which I'm sure is very good at logistics and very good at many things, but what most militaries are not that great at is really getting costs out of an operation, right? They tend to say, get the job done, and they do a good job of that, but not always at the lowest cost. And if you're Valaris, with a very low cost and a very well-run operation, number one, I bet it bothers you that your president says he's disappointed with the country's airlines because Volaris has brought low fares to lots of people, and there are other airlines competing well in Mexico as well. So I agree with you. I think this is more about trying to make this boondoggle of this new airport work and saying, if people aren't going to move here, we're going to have to put something here. It's going to be very interesting as to whether or not other Mexican airlines will decide to put something there or not. Like you said, they hate split operations, but if that's going to be the way to grow in Mexico City, it may be the place to go. Many airlines today, for example, serve both Fort Lauderdale and Miami, and they're about the same distance as these two airports. Yeah, no, that's true, but um, you're right. Valaris uh, can't like this. I'm sure the president is simply trying to pressure Valaris and Aeromexico uh, into into serving his new airport. Uh, you know, if you're Delta, you can't be happy about this either. Delta owns uh, a piece of Aeromexico, which does bring us to our next question. Ben, Alex from Chicago says he's a big fan of the pod, and he sent me a welcome, um, and I was really touched. I'm very grateful for all the welcomes I received this week. Thank you very much, listeners. Alex says, wondering if you'd be interested in weighing in on a conversation a friend and I were having the other day. This sounds like we're settling a bar fight, Ben. It seems like five or 10 years ago, Alex says, the three major U.S. airlines were all playing the same game, chasing traffic in similar markets and on similar routes, solving merger problems, doing more banking at hubs, rolling out credit cards, moving to revenue-based loyalty programs. 
But now that all those best practices seem to have been established, we see three very different strategies. Americans aggressively pursuing partnerships on either coast with Alaska and JetBlue and internationally. Delta's pursuing equity ownership of airlines and joint ventures to serve international markets while pursuing premium domestic traffic with an older fleet at Fortress Hubs. And United's buying efficient planes with tons of wide-body premium seat capacity, launching new international destinations, and essentially going it alone where their competitors are partnering and investing. So Alex says, do you agree with this framing of the major strategies? If you agree, which do you prefer if you had to take a bet on one? What assumptions do you think each airline is making with these strategic choices? That's a big question, Ben. What do you think? We could have a whole show on this question, and I think it's fascinating. Mm. I agree in general with the way Alex laid these out, although I think that Alex may have made a bigger deal about the differences. Let me explain. American is aggressively pursuing partnerships. They've had a long-term partnership with Alaska. JetBlue is a result of them losing money for a long time in the Northeast and sort of finding a way to stay relevant in the Northeast. And in Latin America, they've been aggressive trying to get partners because they lost their huge partner, LATAM, to Delta. They had a big partner there that got yanked away from them, so they've been scrambling trying to get others. So I'm not sure that it's an American strategy to aggressively pursue partnerships or fill gaps or holes as they see them pop up. Delta, on the other hand, I think this is a fair characterization that Alex made. And what I really like about Delta's strategy is while not only creating partnerships with international airlines, when they make investments and joint ventures, they actually can participate in the earnings of revenue streams that Delta on its own couldn't participate in. For example, in domestic Mexico or continental Europe or things like that. So I do like that strategy. And they do have an older fleet at their fortress hubs. But in part, that's because they have another piece of their business, Delta Tech Ops, that's incredibly good at maintaining airplanes. They do it for lots of airlines in the world. So Delta uses that capability to allow themselves to save a bit on capital costs and fly planes longer and ultimately have an older fleet because they can keep them flying safely longer. You walk in a Delta airplane, you don't realize that because they do spend a lot of money to make it look great inside. And United strategy, I think it's pretty fair what Alex said. They do have a lot of wide body capacity, which I still think is questionable given what we still don't know about long-haul business traffic and what that means. And I think United's big bet on things like supersonic airplanes and electric airplane things are right now just that. They're just bets. They're ways to get their employees and the world excited that United's thinking about the future. But I don't think it really means much for what United of the next 10 years is going to be. So Alex, I think you've done a great job of 
parsing these out. I don't think the airlines are quite as different as you make them look, but they are different and more different than they were 10 years ago. That's right. And if I were to bet, I'd bet on Delta because I like the fact that they've just got their financial fingers in lots of pies. That's very interesting, Ben. And I I agree with most of that. I I think uh, American would probably say, hey, we already put in our order for uh, Airbus and Boeing planes. And uh, so United recently doing it, they're just playing catch up. But that said, I'm not sure I share your enthusiasm for the equity stakes in international airlines. Delta had stakes uh, in in, um, LATAM, Aeromexico, and Virgin Atlantic spent about $3 billion for that. And then all three of those airlines restructured in the pandemic and they lost all that and made new investments at $1.2 billion. Their, their stakes got diluted a little bit, but they're obviously in there for, uh, the, for the passengers. Investing in airlines, uh, you know, American did had a run of that under Don Cardi and uh, really it, it never went anywhere pretty well failed. And uh, so I think it remains to be seen if equity ownership in foreign airlines uh, will pay off or not. Um, but it certainly has given them partners that they've, they've liked. And Delta has had to invest in Aeromexico uh, to get it up to the standards that, uh, that Delta wanted. So that there may be more investment uh, needed in the future in, in these partners. A lot to talk about there. And I'm sure we'll talk more, but that's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening and uh, send in your questions and look forward to more discussions next week. And thanks again to Dr. Rob Britton for a great discussion. We'll see everyone next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.